0: On the Record, on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Today,
1: as you know, is the 27th of March, it's Mother's Day. It's also the anniversary of the birth of John Blance, the Irish-born Prime Minister of New Zealand. And what's funny about that is that yesterday, March 26th, was the birthday of William Massey, who was... Another Irish-born Prime Minister of New Zealand. Um, Irish people in New Zealand are maybe some of the more forgotten diaspora stories, particularly that of uh, John Balance or Plance Balance by some people. His story is especially remarkable. He's the son of a tenant farmer who then brings this Irish approach to New Zealand's own question of land and nationality and still somehow then manages to also retain some good relations with the Maori people. And uh, Donald Fallon has just come from a land down under uh, to tell us all these stories. Um, Donald, good to see you back in the flesh after a l- yeah. little bit of an absence. Um, the story of Irish migration to New Zealand is is very different from the rest of the world, even Australia.
0: And very well, you're very welcome to the world of podcasts, Gavin. I noticed that during the, <laughs> <laughs> that during the week. Yeah, yeah, the story years of... years <laughs> later the game, but we all made it there eventually. <laughs> the story of Irish migration to New Zealand. Yeah, it is It is diff- different from the rest of the world, even, even neighbouring Australia. I mean, when we think of the story of Irish migration to New Zealand. It's an immigrant story that, you know, for one thing the men you mentioned in your introduction there, both of them, they're men of Ulster Protestant stock. So we normally think of Irish migration out of the country as the enormous Catholic poor. You know, they're the backbone mm. of outward migration, be it to the United States, yeah. uh, be it to Liverpool. Ar- or,
1: Agrarian, re- re- um, you know, land-rearing poor, agricultural, the famine happens, they've got nowhere else to go, they disappear, like, but they're, they're not
0: the land of gentry. Like the Irish in Argentina who you were talking about on your podcast during the week. But That's by, enough <laughs> podcast plugs. I'll get you back in a minute. I'm, I'm listening, you see. But by the end of World War One, you know, it was estimated that fifty six percent percent of all uh, Irish immigrants in New Zealand hailed from Ulster which is extraordinary so that's not, not that's not normal you know amongst amongst the Irish diaspora mm. that the majority of them would be Ulster Protestants and I think one thing that meant was that the Irish diaspora in New Zealand it looked very very different from anywhere else including Australia like in Australia there's a history of Irish agitation and things like home rule for Ireland or you know Irish laborers involved in the trade union movement you don't really have that story uh, in in New Zealand
1: uh, The funny thing about this is that when you sent in the notes this morning before we were going to do this lot this afternoon um, um, the the two names, William Massey and John Balance, or again, balanced depending on, on which pronunciation you take uh, based on which probably corner of, of Ulster you're from. You'd think that two men of Irish stock who had you know run another country, another Anglophone country elsewhere in the world, that they'd be names that would be immediately in your canon that you you'd, you'd recognise them straight away. It's all up
0: there with the JFKs yeah. or whatever.
1: These guys are, are are totally anonymous back in their home island.
0: Absolutely. You know, and you'll hear about them in places like Epic Ireland, or that museum about about Irish migration. But in, in popular memory they're just totally forgotten. So yeah, to produce an Irish born premier of another nation is an extraordinary achievement. And you know that one weekend can mark the birthday of two of them in the one country uh, even even more so. But Balanson and Massey as you say, they're not the JFK style story of the Irish Catholic poor done good abroad that we love yeah. so much. And I think we have to remember that this history of Ulster Protestant migration, it is part of our story too, also uh, in the United States as well as in New Zealand.
1: Uh, Maybe the Ulsterness of the Irish in New Zealand, it wasn't just some sort of quirk or some phenomenon. It wasn't this accident. It was maybe by design. Yeah, they made a kind of
0: conscious decision what kind of Irish people they wanted to have in New Zealand. And New Zealand, according to, to one publication in the 1840s, it's the... Most recent, remotest, and least civilized of our colonies. I mean, not a great. <laughs> the Ulster Protestants said. That yeah. sounds right up our yeah, street. You you, yeah, you wouldn't read that on Daft no. which is selling somewhere. But I mean, the colonization of New Zealand then—it's it, it, systematic. They established what's called the New Zealand Company with a royal charter, and it's modeled really strongly on what they'd done elsewhere. So if you look at who these who these guys are, the, the New Zealand Company, there's names there. Early directors have been involved in the East India Company, for example. You know, okay. and the language used around the natives is kind of is kind of interesting. So this. Attempt is made, if you will, to, to, to recruit the right kind of colonists, uh, we might say. And when they start building New Zealand, look at how they rebrand the land. You know, one of the earliest settlements is called Nelson, in right. honour of Admiral Horatio Nelson. Okay. So you have these kind of prominent Anglo Irish we'll say, Anglo Irish figures amidst the key movers and shakers in this story. But Irish migrants, you know, the, the Catholic poor of Connacht are just not desirable here. They don't want them. Yeah. And despite that, somebody Colonized islands, they give them Irish names, so they call them New Ulster, New Munster. Uh, New Leinster but if we take New Munster itself in 1848 I mean the time when just everyone who can leave Ireland is leaving Ireland so the 1840s there's just 175 Irish inhabitants living in New Munster. Wow! Uh,
1: I remember someone telling me not too long ago that they they recently rediscovered that the, the names of some of the, the two larger islands are New Munster and New Leinster and if you thought the rugby rivalry in New Zealand was already tough going you'd <laughs> want to see what happens when you, you bring that into it. Um, the Irish Catholic poor um, so they weren't desirable at least at the time Uh, But maybe there comes a time when actually, you know, bring us your your huddled poor, your yearning
0: masses, because actually we need the labour. They need them. They find gold. The discovery of gold in the the South Island, Central, Otago, Westland provinces. It creates a kind of gold rush in, in New Zealand. And what's really interesting about a gold rush when it happens is it's not the usual migration of people. When we think of people moving, we think of families moving. When there's a gold rush, what you tend to get is like significant numbers of single men. These are fellas looking for their fortune, if you will. And they start arriving there. Some of them travel from the gold fields of California, which is just amazing, isn't it? Chasing their, their fortune wherever, wherever they think they might find it mm. uh, and then they move on in time to, to New Zealand via Australia. So things are shifting now and Kevin Malloy who's written a lot about the country says Irish Catholics constituted 18.5% of New Zealand's population by the mid-1880s. Wow.
1: 18.5% so of, of the whole
0: country. So almost one in five people yeah. in New Zealand are Irish Catholics which is which is extraordinary. So that's not just the colonists that's everyone who's living in, in New Zealand. Yeah. It's a very deeply significant uh, ethnic bloc and I Ironically, it's the exact kind of thing the early colonists didn't want that they wanted to avoid. But you see their influence in the place names of New Zealand. Ardmore, I mean, there's an Ardmore, isn't that extraordinary? Mm. Uh, Glasnevin, Bangor, and the one I love, Kerrytown. You know, (laughs) (laughs) what a name, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, there was probably some Tralee lads and some Killarney lads and some Listow lads and they couldn't figure out what to call it and they were going to have a bit of a Barney so they just decided, (laughs) you know what, it works out. Let's go with Kerrytown. Let's just call it Kerrytown. and then there's the very real question, so in the middle of this and you have this this first wave of Ulster Protestants and then you have this wave of Irish Catholics because they go, and like you say, they go from California, they probably go through Victoria in Australia, they go through Ballarat, that gold mining town, find their way to New Zealand, and then you've got this real question of, well, the, the original natives, the Maori, who are, who are native to those islands, and how immediately swamped they are by this whole mass influx of Europeans coming.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the natives of British colonial history are, are back in the news in a big way, aren't they? I mean, the week that just passed has been a lot of interesting stuff in the contemporary news cycle uh, about the royal visit to to Jamaica and these kind of ghosts of the past that can that can reemerge. And New Zealand had and has its own indigenous people, of course. And then questions of how the colonists and the Maori would interact, if they should interact at all, Uh, were there since the very beginning. And some people in the New Zealand company, they were kind of weary of the approach that had been taken in in the United States. Mm. The idea of moving these people into settlements, you know, where where they shall live on their own uh, and favoured a more more kind of integrated approach of old and new. And others, I mean, this is the 19th century, there's there's racism on a state level. You know, Mm. other people took a, a... a very racialized view of these people that no their land is now our land.
1: So enter on this note then John uh, Balance uh, the Antriman. So he he comes along and he actually he's got some slightly more enlightened thinking maybe about the sort of relationship that the the new arrivals should have with the Mary uh, and basically his whole series of views at the time were were not really all that in keeping with convention.
0: Yeah, John Balance born in, in Glenavy Antrim 1839. Uh, he's someone who had to think about these questions, you know, of the Maori and and, and the natives because he throws himself into New Zealand politics when he arrives there uh, in the 1860s. And as a political figure, he, he kind of came to believe very strongly in the rights of the Maori, even though he'd fought against them uh, when he got there in the Second Maori War. He came to believe in the rights of the Maori to retain land that they still held. That doesn't mean give them back the land you've taken, by the way. <laughs> that meant yeah. whatever, they, whatever they still held... Uh, they could hold, mm. and that was at odds with you know many others who believed in seizing that land by force. They thought that was vital yeah. to the colonial project succeeding. You know, when I, you, when you, gonna
1: actually interrupt you and say it's a very Irish approach to things that even if you are an <laughs> Ulster Protestant, that it's still a very Irish
0: approach of hang on now we're not going over here to take everyone else's land. We've enough experience of that ourselves. Absolutely, and Balanza's family they're they're a very interesting family. They've strong Orange traditions. His grandfather was wounded fighting the rebels in 1798. <laughs> but they're a farming family, and he has a sense, of course, that. So much of the problem in Ireland is entangled in lands. You know, the agrarian unease becomes political unease and his biographer writes of him he strongly opposed those who sought to establish in New Zealand the landed interest which had helped to cause agrarian problems in Ireland and as a secularist he opposed religious intervention in education and political life. Okay. He introduced the residential franchise, the first in any colony which resulted in almost universal male franchise and this is extraordinary. In 1893 a bill to allow adult women to vote. I mean that is just yeah. remarkable this is really really enlightened stuff in the context well, of the colonies. Yeah, so
1: residential franchise, in other words if you you live somewhere, you have a vote, and then in 1893, a, a bill to allow out of women. Because if you th- bear in mind, you know, we introduce women's franchise in time for the election in 1918, but, it, but it's only if you're of the, the Markovich class basically, the yeah. Gore Booth sort of landed gentry. It's not universal, but this is pretty much you live somewhere you Have the right to vote, including for women, which is very progressive uh, for the 19th century. Um, and what's more, then going back just to the Maori question, um, Balance even then tries to, to really meet them where they're at by learning their own language.
0: Yeah, and I mean, he developed what we might call, you know, we talk about people having pigeon Irish, kind of pigeon Maori, you know, he, he tried <laughs> yeah. to acquire some proficiency in the language of the Maori people, uh, and he pursued, as Berger puts it, an enlightened, if somewhat paternalistic policy aimed at protecting Maori land uh, from private sale. But unfortunately, you know, that approach that he talked of just trying to understand the Maori and trying to remove you know, tensions between the Maori and, and, and the European colonists. That really makes him an outlier. That wasn't typical really of, of the approach that was taken politically uh, in, in New Zealand. And the Maori people it should be said they lost an awful awful lot.
1: Yeah. Um, the subsequent Irish born Prime Minister the other guy who mentioned that the introduction to this William Massey um, his anniversary also falls this week it would have been his birthday yesterday. Uh, what's sort of ironic is that you, again you think to Irishmen who go out there that maybe they're somewhat kindred spirits.
0: Actually, Massey begins his life as an opponent of the other fellow. Which is amazing, yeah. He's he's known as Which is the most Irish thing, really. There's some great names in politics, isn't there? Like, Parnell is the uncrowned king of Ireland. Uh, Mm. Collins is the big fella. This guy, Massey, is Farmer Bill. William Ferguson Massey, the nomen in in New Zealand politics as Farmer Bill. He's a later Prime Minister of New Zealand, born 1856. He rules the country from from 1912 to 25 as as, as Prime Minister. But yeah, from Limavadi, what's so weird about this story is that this second Northern Irish before the state of Northern Ireland, but the second Ulster Prime Mm. Minister of, of New Zealand, first comes to public prominence as an active rural conservative voice against the Liberal government of John Balance, which is incredible. And he's a very different political operator. He's remembered for his words on the outbreak of the First World War. All we are and all we have is at the disposal of the British government. I mean, he really saw the empire as this great thing worthy of of preservation and promotion. In his own words, he said, we need to be ever vigilant against those who would sell their immortal souls to see the empire broken up and dismembered this stuff it's it's a 19th century way of talking he's a 19th century politician uh who rules in the wrong century you know who's in power in in the 20th century yeah. but he is that second ulster seat if you will yeah. uh, at the, at the top of new zealand politics w- much
1: closer to that forgotten ulster sort of mold of stuff that we might be a little bit more familiar with uh, these days i'm reminded of one of the old the, one of the younger tommy tiernan shows where he he makes this he has this routine about how in any battlefront anywhere in the world you will find two Irishmen on opposite sides Like yeah. you'll have like a war yeah. in the Mongolian jungle and you'll have like Westmeath and Longford lads firing petrol bombs <laughs> over at each other you, you're all in so and so I just I kind of love the irony that the, the two lads from the same even corner of the island with the same sort of religious outlook just totally end up on opposite sides um, the Irish in New Zealand um, they're now a very recognised and, and a kind of a growing part of the story of the nation
0: yeah and I and I'm sure many people listening have relatives of, of cousins out there uh, there's roughly 800 100,000 people in New Zealand of Irish ancestry, which is about 15% of the total population. So still a lot of Irish people there and new younger Irish communities too. You know, And, and the barometer that we use to measure Irish migration to a place which is always reliable yeah. and scientifically proven, how many GAA teams are there? And, <laughs> 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 and how many have they got? Yeah, 2021, 27 GAA teams from across the country competed in, in Christchurch. Okay. So yeah, native Irish games being played in New Zealand, they were certainly not on the itinerary of the New Zealand no. company and the early colonists it might have been the last thing they wanted was people from Connacht playing hurling in New Zealand <laughs> but alas it's happening today to,
1: to New Zealand <laughs> or to Connacht uh, it, that's the way it would always work out uh, you've been kind enough to do two podcast plugs uh, I won't go through another one but suffice to say that Donald Fallon is a presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast uh, an excellent little offering about uh, the history of our capital city you'll find that anywhere you get your audio online he's also uh, the author of the Come Here To Me books and more recently of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia a journey of uh, Dublin's gentrification throughout the 20th century.